Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Another episode of The Last Dance is in the books, and this was one for the books. Welcome to The Last Dance, part seven and eight review here on the Hoop Ball Chicago Bulls podcast, a part of the Hoop Ball Network. My name is Greg Moraz, your host, as per usual. Appreciate everybody that has listened to all of our Last Dance reviews. I said that we were going to have a Mark Eversley episode. We're going to do that later in this week. Ran out of time last week. Certain things just didn't fall into place, but we're going to have an in-depth package on Mark Eversley and some news that is coming out surrounding the future of Jim Boylan, which I think is interesting because there's a couple of different contrasting viewpoints from new VP Arturis Karnaschovas, Mark Eversley, and then the old guard of John Paxson, and actually in this case, Jerry Reinsdorf. So we left episode six of The Last Dance pretty much knowing that episode seven was going to start with Michael calling it quits after the 92-93 season. And I think what this episode really did a good job of is putting into context how much James Jordan meant to Michael and understanding more of the backstory behind James Jordan's death. And I did the research into it. And I mean, the guy pulled over on the side of the highway to take a little nap and make sure that he wasn't driving sleep-deprived after a weekend with his buddies. I mean, just like they said in the documentary, it could have happened to anybody. And James Jordan was the victim of two hooligans that cost him his life and cost Michael Jordan a big part of his life. And I think that as mentally worn down as MJ was at that point after the third title, the passing of his father gave him every excuse in the world to step away from the game of basketball. I also think, though, it's fascinating that his father always wanting him to play baseball is why Michael Jordan went from basketball to baseball. And so I also host a baseball podcast. It's an independent podcast that I host on my own. It's called MLB Morning Coffee. If you all want to take a listen to it, I recommend you do so. I put out episodes pretty much every day, although we only had four episodes last week. In any event, it was his dad's desire for him to go play baseball that made MJ go play baseball. And Jerry Reinsdorf, also being the owner of the Chicago White Sox, 
made it that much easier for Jordan to actually venture over to baseball. Now, this is amazing. Jordan had not played baseball since high school. So the last time that he played in a competitive baseball game was age 17 and then picks it up again at the age of 31. Now, I didn't realize that Reinsdorf had MJ put in double A because lower levels did not have adequate media facilities. And having worked in some of the lower levels, I can tell you that somebody like a Michael Jordan coming into Great Falls, Montana, which is the current rookie ball affiliate of the Chicago White Sox, would not have worked. Michael Jordan at Centene Stadium in Great Falls, Montana, that would have been quite a sight to behold. So it's clear that Michael Jordan was not a double-A baseball player. Now, there's a whole documentary, a 30-for-30 Jordan Rides the Bus, about his entire experience in double-A. I didn't realize that his manager was Terry Francona's, which, number one, pretty darn cool that a guy that ends up winning two World Series as a manager becomes your manager there. And Jordan hit 202 with seven homers and 51 runs driven in. The fact that a guy that had not played organized baseball in 14 years and went straight to double A and was able to hit above 200 and drove in 51 runs over a full season, that just shows you how great of an athlete Michael Jordan was. And he started the season on a 13-game hitting streak. And as the hitting coach was saying, as they started to throw him more breaking balls, he started to struggle. I honestly didn't realize how big of a work ethic Michael had on the baseball side of things. I think it just went to his drive that he wanted to win at everything. He wanted to be the best at everything that he did and that he was willing to put in the type of work to be the best baseball player that he could be. Now, I honestly do dispute Jerry Reinsdorf's claim that if Jordan had kept with baseball, he would have made it to the majors. I don't necessarily think that's the case. But if you compare that with somebody like a Tim Tebow, Tebow's numbers as a part of the Mets organization have been really bad. And I think that Michael had better numbers in one season than Tebow has had really his whole minor league career. And Tebow got to AAA last year and he hit like 179. Michael Jordan definitely, for the circumstances that he was put into, Basically having a couple months of training and then announcing he's going to go play baseball and going to a level that's two levels below the majors and to play that well, relatively speaking, is a huge testament to Michael. But his baseball journey, it seems like, was more of a way to get his mind away from basketball after his father had passed. And I think that you saw, even though he did not excel at baseball the way that he excelled at basketball, that it was a good way for him to get his mind off of the stresses of his father's passing, off the sadness of his father's passing, and away from a game that had taken a lot out of him. I am glad that the documentary addressed a couple of things. That number one, his father's death was in no way related to his gambling problems there were a lot of conspiracy theories out there and i had heard that from many a person so the fact that they addressed that head-on was great the other thing is that i'm glad that you got a statement from david stern that said that michael jordan did not get secretly suspended during the time that he was away from basketball the fact that people thought that his gambling issues 
made the NBA suspend him. There's a lot of people that believe that. There's a lot of people that I have talked to that think that's absolute truth. So the fact that, and granted, a lot of these interviews were done over two years ago, the fact that we got the late, great David Stern on the record as saying that Michael Jordan was never suspended from the NBA, I think is very helpful to the story arc of the years that Jordan was away from the game. Really, it was basically about 18 months. And Jordan probably would have continued with baseball if it was not for the baseball strike. But given where he was in his life, given how much time he had spent away from the game, I think that after that breakfast he had with B.J. Armstrong and going to practice, he felt like he was ready to roll again. And obviously he was not the same player that he was prior to stepping away. He still was effective enough to lead the Bulls to the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Magic was utterly impressive. But the fact of the matter is that Michael Jordan was not in the same type of shape that he was prior to retiring. He was in a more baseball shape. Baseball and basketball are two extremely different sports in terms of what you're supposed to do with your body. And Michael Jordan clearly was not the same basketball shape that he was prior to retiring, and it showed. And that's why the Bulls were not able to overcome the Orlando Magic in those 95 playoffs. But it gave Jordan that extra motivation to be able to come back in that 95-96 season and be the best that they could be. And for him to will that team to being the best regular season team at the time in the history of the NBA. One thing that I really liked is that they gave us an introspective side into Jordan's training program that offseason while he was filming Space Jam. And the fact that they actually built him a Jordan Dome on the Warner Brothers studio lots. And the fact you had all these legendary pickup games going on while Jordan wasn't filming. I think that's something that people would have loved to have had a story done on altogether is the Jordan Dome pickup games. You've got some of the best players in the NBA that are playing pickup games at the Warner Brothers Studios court that they built so that Michael Jordan could stay in shape while filming Space Jam. That's awesome. I think there had to be some legendary games that went on under that roof. Some games and maybe some money even exchanged. You looked in there, you had Reggie Miller, you had Rodman, you had Patrick Ewing. Oh, man, to be a fly on the wall in those games was just awesome. And I feel like Michael Jordan's added motivation, given his comeback and given that he was now playing basketball without his best friend, his father, his guiding influence, gave him that extra motivation to push himself and push that team to the limit. So I do want to divert to a couple of different stories now. And the first one I want to talk about is what Jordan did to push his teammates. It seemed like Jordan basically bossed his teammates around to the point where they were maxed out emotionally. But, MJ basically said there's a price to pay for being the greatest and that he would win at all costs. And the story about punching Steve Kerr in practice is one that you always hear about, but it seemed like Kerr was okay with it and that Kerr understood the type of work ethic that Michael was bringing to the table after that incident. And you heard Kerr say, or rather you heard Michael say, that Kerr gained his respect 
after that practice. Jordan came back in knowing that he had to make sure that the work ethic of guys like Tony Kukoc and Steve Kerr and others that had not been a part of the first era of championship Bulls teams understood the program and understood that Michael was the boss and that Michael was going to outwork you and you needed to make sure that your work ethic was on his level if the team was going to achieve the same success. Seemed like Jordan was somewhat of that tyrant, but everybody understood the reason why he did it. I don't think Jordan necessarily cared about being a nice guy. I think Jordan was the guy that wanted to make sure that nobody beat him. And if he was not a nice guy or a friendly guy, then so be it. You know, you can have that nasty competitive side and have that edge that makes you, quite frankly, an a-hole. But MJ didn't care about what others thought of him or if others liked him. All that mattered for him was winning, and the thing that concerned him the most was making sure that everybody else was on the same page in regards to winning. I really liked the little sidebar that they did on Scott Burrell and how Jordan basically was on Scott Burrell his entire rookie year, but the fact that Jordan developed a good relationship with him by riding him and that it almost was a sign of respect that Jordan was chiding him as much as he did. So while Jordan's playing baseball, you've got the Bulls who are playing great team basketball in 93-94, and Tony Kukoc comes to the team. And the sidebar that they did on Tony Kukoc was one that I think was necessary. The European superstar coming into a team that had just won three championships. Great shooter. Somebody that was not going to fill the shoes of a Michael Jordan, but was going to come in and be another complimentary piece to a team that was being basically led by Scottie Pippen and the rest of the complimentary pieces of the first championship era. I did not know about the game in the 94 playoffs where Scottie Pippen refused to come into the game because Phil Jackson drew up the play for Kukoc. And I am looking at that and understanding how big of a team aspect the Bulls had that made them as great as they were. For Scottie Pippen to have a moment like that is so unlike Scottie Pippen. And they were doing an interview with Michael Wilbon and Jackie McMullen on SportsCenter with Scott Van Pelt after Episode 8 finished up. And I think SVP did a good job of summarizing that the documentary has really highlighted a lot of Scottie Pippen's bad moments, even though there were a ton of great moments, moments that defined him as one of the best players of his era, if not the best player on his team because of the fact that he was playing alongside Michael Jordan. And Bill Cartwright's impassioned speech that was referenced in that episode really made it clear to Pippen that he made a mistake. The Bulls won that game, but they basically were not the same team for the rest of that season because it was a moment that really emotionally shook them and one that they had to work hard to recover from just to stay mentally in it in that series. Like for the best player on your team and a guy that's won three rings and somebody that without Michael Jordan has stepped to the forefront as the leader of your team to refuse to come into the game on the final possession, 
on a play that wasn't designed for you, Pippen felt like he earned the right to have the final shot. Well, you know, sometimes when you're thinking of it from a basketball perspective, you don't draw up the final play for the best player. You draw it up for a guy that's going to get in the best position. You try and trick the defense. You try and run a decoy, and maybe your best player sets a screen, somebody rolls off of it, and is able to get a wide-open shot. And it wasn't a wide-open shot, but Kukoc got a great shot. The Bulls won the game. The play that Phil drew up worked. So for Scotty to act that way, I think, as Jordan said, it's something that will haunt him the rest of his life. I mean, who knows if the Bulls were going to end up beating the Rockets in the finals that year if they had gotten there. But I still think it's worth noting that that moment was highlighted for a reason in that I almost feel like it was to contrast Pippen's alpha leadership with Michael's alpha leadership. I don't feel like they're doing a good job of trying to make Pippen look good because they've highlighted several bad moments, as we made reference to from the Sports Center segment. When you're talking about Pippen's contract and the surgery and now the sitting bull game. I think they need to do a better job of explaining how important Pippen was to the championship culture of that team because they have not painted Pippen appropriately in these episodes. So let's move forward to the 98 playoffs. The Bulls being painted as this vulnerable team throughout the year. They struggle with the Nets in the first game. And then Jordan turns on the Jets and they sweep the Nets. And then the second series with B.J. Armstrong playing for the Charlotte Hornets and him hitting that shot and firing up the crowd and Jordan basically saying he should know better than that. And Jordan comes out and dominates him. And the story back in 1993 of LeBradford Smith and his 36 points against Jordan and him saying, nice game, Michael, after the game, and then Jordan scoring 37 in the first half the next night, and Jordan making that story up because he needed the motivation to go out and dominate after the Bulls had gotten dominated that night, and basically us not really knowing whether or not that story was true, and more than likely, Jordan probably made it up. But in any event, he made it up to motivate himself. And that's the greatness of Michael Jordan is that he could find a reason to motivate himself to perform at his best. And after B.J. Armstrong celebrated in the way that he did after the Hornets beat the Bulls in game two of the Eastern Conference semis and Jordan saying, well, you're not going to do this to me. And him coming back and finding a motivation to dominate B.J. Armstrong throughout. So let's then flash back to the 96 finals. And George Carl apparently stiffing Michael Jordan at dinner the night before, not saying hello. And Jordan using that as motivation to dominate the Sonics. And Gary Payton basically saying that it would have been a different series if he had been on Jordan the whole time. And Gary Payton was one of the best defensive guards in the NBA and gave Jordan a lot of trouble in games four and five. If he's on him the entire series, maybe it is a different result. I don't think so. I think the Bulls were presumptive favorites because of how great they were that entire year. 
And it's easy to understand why Gary Payton is trying to be a little bulldog there, knowing that he's got nothing to lose in a scenario where they basically have to do what has never been done and come back from the 3-0 series deficit figure might give him a little extra motivation. But Jordan eventually was able to will the Bulls to the series victory against the Sonics. So we now have two different parallel timelines that we're dealing with going into parts 9 and 10. We have the Eastern Conference Finals against the Indiana Pacers in 98. And then we have probably what's going to be, at least I assume it's going to be, the introduction of the dominance of the Utah Jazz in the Western Conference starting in the 96-97 season. Because that's the one thing that we really haven't seen yet. We have not heard much about John Stockton, Carl Malone, and the Utah Jazz, who became the Bulls' biggest rival for the final two years of the Jordan dynasty. And I think that we're going to get a much better perspective about the development of the Jazz moving into the final two championship years of the Bulls than we have in the first eight parts of this series. I really enjoyed part seven and eight of The Last Dance. I hope that you did as well. This has been another edition of the Hoop Ball Chicago Bulls podcast. Have a great week, everybody. And as always, go Bulls. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.